Lucky you. 36 best holes in golf. Alternate Shots Podcast. Barney's Army. Where we talk about golf. Sandy. Poker. James Bond. Horse racing. Double. Classic movies. Zenyatta. We have no script. Down the stretch they come. We are glad you joined us. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen from the Alternate Shots Podcast, we are so, so very thrilled to have with us today our special guest, Mark Frost, and uh, Billy and I thank you, Mark, for joining us. Most folks would know you in the golfing world, Mark, for certainly the Grand Slam, the greatest game, and we're looking at the match. But you also wrote some uh, the Hill Street Blues and uh, Twin Peaks, right? Yeah, Hill Street Blues, Twin Peaks, some Marvel movies. I mean, I've been all over the place. And I'm actually you- writing a play now. I, I studied as a playwright as a as a kid. I went to Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh and graduated as a playwright. And I'm writing my first play in 40 years. So I uh, I decided not to take a vow of poverty and become a playwright for good. But I'm coming <laughs> back to it at the end of my career. It's kind of fun. Well, Billy's a writer more so than I because the nun slapped him on the wrist uh, better than I did get at public school in Maranek High School. So... Is it harder to be a playwright, a screenwriter, a scriptwriter, an author? What they're all different things. They're, it's like match play and metal play, right? They're different approaches. Yeah, they're all different things. They all, all have their pluses and minuses. They all they all require different strengths. Um, they all, as a baseline, need you need to be able to tell good stories. Um, you need to be able to create convincing characters. You need to be able to create a sense of drama and a sense of what are the stakes in the story? Because that's what hooks people. What you know, they want to know who am I? Who am I rooting for? What am I in for? Um, so the principles are kind of the same, but the uh, it's like you know you wear different equipment to play hockey than you do football. So it's like the accoutrement of the storytelling are different in in everything. And I've done them all. I've done documentaries. I've done. Um, uh, all sort of fiction, nonfiction, you know, I mean, I've been around, I've been down the whole block. Did you write the screenplay to the greatest play game uh, for the, for the I movie? Yeah. And I, pr- I produced the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, so um, not to get too sidetracked here, but writing a, a, a screenplay, cause I looked into that and found it um, next to impossible. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> you have to describe everything, right? It's, it's, and it's gotta I be, I mean, it's all about, yeah. Certain spacing. It's about what you see, you know, and what and what you hear. The, the, the you hear the dialogue, but if you don't give the director, whoever's going to take over, what we're supposed to see and be pretty specific about it, you're not going to end up with what you wanted. So <laughs> I learned early on that was the, and I've directed a film too, and I've directed a lot of television. So you you realize if it's not on the page, it uh, it often doesn't make it onto the screen. Describe directing your own book, your own screenplay. Well, I've done both. I've worked. Uh, I, I didn't direct Greatest Game. That was the great, the late great actor Bill Paxton, really dear friend of mine, who did a wonderful job directing the movie. But we worked very closely together, and I'd shot a lot of the second unit stuff, and I worked with him in conceptualizing the film. We worked with a um, what they call a storyboard artist to try to free visualize a lot of the shots. Um, and, and particularly with what we tried to do with golf, because golf movies up until that point had basically stayed at arm's length and shot it as if it, you may as well have been watching a match on television. And 
our idea and my suggestion to him was we got to get inside the heads of these golfers and we got to get inside the the mechanics of the swing the flight of the ball the the feeling of what it's like to be in the zone and also when you're when you're crashing um and he he and the camera uh the cinematographer were really inventive and came up with ways i think that you know we hadn't seen golf depicted before well no it i think it's a groundbreaker and it's a great story of course but and the acting was great was excellent uh, shia shia yeah yeah, Shai did a great job. It was his first um, job as an adult actor. He'd been a Disney TV teen star, and he'd done one kind of teen movie. Um, but they felt he was somebody who could carry the picture. And it's so funny. He came to the audition with a golf bag over his shoulder, <laughs> saying he'd just come from the range. But he 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 was carrying it the wrong way. It's all, it's always a tell, you know. If the bag is in front of your shoulder, you go. Sure, you were, pal. Yeah, yeah, you were at the range. So we, I, I mean, he got the part, um, and I took him out to see what he could do. And I mean, he barely knew which end of the club to hold. He'd never swung a club before in his life. Great. So we had to put him in. We had to put him in boot camp for six months <laughs> with two different pros working on the swing. He never had to hit a live ball uh, during. Uh, no balls were harmed in the making of this picture. <laughs> it's all a CGI ball. Um, with one exception, he does hit the big putt on 17. This was a blast. We shot the movie in um, in Montreal, and we we uh, bought out uh, an old venerable club on the west side of Montreal called Kanawaki. It's on an island out uh, to the west of town. Looks a lot like the country club. It's the same vintage a lot of the same um, kind of topography and trees and and, uh, and a similar style. So it worked really well as a stand-in for the country club. But to do that special shot on 17, that, that labyrinthine putt that <laughs> goes in, we didn't have the access to the original. We had to create it. So we went into a park in Montreal and built three golf holes. And I designed a green with some little kind of hidden channels <laughs> so that all he had to do was hit the ball over, you know, like a, a dot 12 feet in front of him. And if he caught the speed right, we were able to track with the ball like 60 feet to the cup. He couldn't miss it. So that right? was a real shot. That was a real shot. But he yeah. couldn't miss it because you had the channel. It, I mean, I wish I had that at my course, you know. Yeah. So, so yeah. Billy taught me something. We're big fans of Hitchcock. Are you the type of person when you're a director to go into the lens? Like yeah. Billy says, just about every important shot Hitchcock got into the lens. He always looked through the camera himself, according to what I've read. I actually met Hitchcock once. Wow. Um, when I was a 19-year-old rookie coming out to California, uh, I got set up at Universal through a, an alumni uh, who was 10 years older than me. Fellow named Steve Bochco, who went on to create Oh yeah, Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue and Wise um, Guy. Yeah, he he introduced me all around the lot. I got work right away. I was actually working on the Six Million Dollar Man, if you could believe it. That was my first gig. Lee and, Majors. Uh, Lee Majors. So um, the Universal Commissary and the Universal Lot had a lot of the flavor of the old time studios because. 
they were shooting something like 32 hours of primetime TV a week, in addition to, to movies. So that's when Rock Hudson was making Macmillan and Wife. Peter Falk was doing Columbo. I mean, there were tr always tremendous people to see in the commissary. And I walked in one day with Bochco. I think it was the first or second time I was there. And there, Alfred Hitchcock was shooting his last movie called Family Plot. Mm -hmm. Bruce Universal. Yeah, with Bruce Stern and Karen Black. And he would sit in the same booth every day in the corner. And I said, Steve, I, I got to go say hello. It's Alfred Hitchcock. He said, they say he doesn't like to be bothered. And I said, well, it's a once in a lifetime deal. I'm going to go over and say something. Yeah. So um, I remembered I had studied film like uh, quite a lot. I, and I taught some film and I knew a little bit of, about Hitchcock's advance. And he had done a famous shot in one of his last silent movies called The Lodger, just sort of based loosely on Jack the Ripper, where the hero is anxiously walking, pacing back and forth. He, they, uh, he, uh, he's being falsely suspected of being the killer. And the people downstairs are looking up at the ceiling and thinking, what's the killer doing now? And he actually put a shot in with a transparent ceiling. So you saw the guy's footsteps walking back and forth. This was something, the kind of thing no one had ever tried before. So I went up and asked him how he did that shot in the lodger. And he got instantly engaged and told me about they they put their version of plexiglass, whatever that was, under the camera. It was only about four feet off the ground. And they'd hung a, a you see the, the lighting fixture. So he shoots up past the lighting fixture, watching this guy go back and forth with the ceiling above him. And um, he was very gracious. I really liked him. It's kind of cool. One last Hitchcock story. I know we're trying to, we're here to talk about other things. Bel Air Country Club. And, Say that again. Uh, he lived where? The 15th Fairway of Bel Air Country Club in LA. And, and um, forever, lived there forever. And when he died, this started happening. And I've seen it every time I've played there. As you go down the 15th Fairway, there is a giant, I guess what we would call murder of crows <laughs> hanging out in his yard and house. Oh, my God. Or maybe they just saw the picture and wanted to get even. I don't know. They wanted to recreate the jungle gym scene in the scene Burbs, from, which we, we think yeah, is I mean, the greatest scenes of all. It's unbelievable. Fantastic. That scene and that, that man's mind was sing singular. Yeah. I just watched rewatched Vertigo again, which is one of my favorite films. And uh, it's just a work of staggering brilliance. Right. Trouble with Harry, Vertigo, Rear Window, and um, The Man Who Knew Plus Too like, Much. And the Man Who Knew Too Much. Those were all those universal films that he made in the 50s. And, right. And they were pulled and then for he a, did, they came back. Yeah. Yeah. Vertigo was a flop when it came out, which is why he pulled it. And he gave it to um, television in the mid-60s, which is when I saw it as a kid. Me too. Was yeah. mes mesmerized by it. Yep. Same right, with the man. Enough Hitchcock stories, but well, Kim <laughs> Novak and Jimmy Stewart's a tough combination. I thought Grace Kelly and Jimmy Stewart was unbreakable, but or unbeatable. But and, and yeah. Jimmy Stewart and Doris Day weren't weren't bad either. And the man who knew too weren't much. Bad either. That's right. Case that's, that's incredible. You know, Billy told the story about Hitchcock as a five year old. His father sent him to the constable in town. Did you hear that one? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and, and maybe that shaped his life. What shaped your life? Um, being on the Art Linkletter show when I was in first grade, 
Kids say the uh, darndest things. Yeah. Um, my dad, as you may or may not know, was an actor. And he was on Twin Peaks and had a, had a really nice career. Um, at the time when we moved out to L.A., when he'd been the stage manager on Philco Playhouse, which was one of the three great anthology drama shows in the 50s. And when all that went away, when they stopped making uh, shows in New York and it was no longer the center of the industry, everybody moved to L.A. That's when it all started. And he was working at CBS. Um, so I've always suspected that maybe he said something to the the casting person. But they they came to my elementary school and interviewed all of us in first grade. And they picked, I think there were two of us who ended up going. So I got that first experience that, you know, they actually pick you up in a limo at from school, drove me to CBS Studio City. Um, I I killed with, I had a couple of jokes lined up. I was very comfortable when you're, you know, you're behind, you don't know where you are really. You're a kid, right? And there's four of us and Linkletter comes in in the dressing room and he's got makeup on, but a, a big bib to, so he doesn't get it on his shirt, really friendly, but he leans down, he had an enormous head. It was like the Macy's Day Parade, uh, looking up at one of those balloons. And um, he had all of our answers written down on uh, index cards in case some kid went up and, and froze and a lavalier mic that he could kill. Um, so I, I paid attention to that. And the kid next to me did exactly that. When it came time for him to answer a question, he went, uh, and I saw Linkletter turn off the mic and turn his back to the camera and whisper the answer to the kid and then step back and the kid gave the answer. Um, so I thought, oh, so that's how it works. <laughs> so anyway, I told a, a, a joke that got a huge laugh. He asked me if I had any pets and I said I had um, I had some goldfish. <laughs> and he said, uh, what are their names? I said, uh, Eeny, Meeny, and Miney. And he said, oh, really? What, what happened to Mo? I said, there ain't no Mo. <laughs> and I think my dad had told me that joke. And it, the audience erupted. It was, and I heard that sound and I went, oh, this is, I think this might be what I want to do for a living. Not necessarily acting, but being in this kind of feedback loop with a group of people like that. I, I it was a, from that moment on, I was a goner. And on Romper Room for many years, and my my children went on once or twice, but they didn't follow up uh, with any best-selling books or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you another story. Um, my roommate, when I was starting out, I had a couple of them. Who, we all went on to have careers in the business, and one of them grew up as a caddy there, um, and went on to play maybe the most famous or second famous caddy in film history in Caddyshack, Michael O'Keefe. Oh, sure. You knew Michael growing up? Danny Newman. Yeah. Michael's yeah. My, one of my closest friends. Here's one you should get. You'll have nothing in like it. <laughs> know that one. <laughs> that night. Yeah. yeah. So that was like 1982. So Caddyshack, it was, you know, it actually grew in popularity as time went on. And I started working Wall Street in 1982. All these guys were doing Caddyshack quotes. And I was like, I didn't know anything about it. I'd seen the movie once. Um, and I didn't have, these guys had all the quotes down. So, I mean. I knew Billy, his brother, who I'm sure you know, who's been, I think, been president of the club. 
these books they're they're legendary and they they cover such interesting eras or times and characters in golf were you to write a book today about golf who would what would be the storyline and who would you have in it if it was real like the match you know the the thing that i loved about the 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 characters that i wrote about obviously in greatest game i didn't get to meet many of them but i've met most of the people since then um i it would have been fun to write about jack and arnie who i both knew and admired greatly um i think the book that would have interested me the most and he's been elusive and and he's hard to pin down would be lee trevino's story yes uh which is a tremendous it's, i mean it's like francis you know a guy who came up from nothing who worked his way out of the 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 cart barn at El Paso Country Club and that famous time when uh, they had the bet with uh, uh, with Ray Floyd and that's um, why so I, I haven't told it in a while so I, I got to see if I can remember it it was it was a there was a famous gambler was it uh, Titanic and, Thompson yeah Titanic Thompson who mm-hmm. was a, a, a hustler who would come into town and he'd set pigeons up and he'd work it out and he'd always find a ringer that he could bring in so to him it was to try to bag and fleece um a pga professional and in his case and ray floyd you know a champion professional golfer who had a a a fondness for gambling and a fondness for a good time so they 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 talked him into coming down to el paso for a a match play event he didn't know who he was going to play he arrives, they start pouring in drinks just as he's getting out of the car. And this very friendly Mexican-American come, guy comes out to take his bag out of the trunk, <laughs> wearing a caddy's um, overalls. And uh, he says, yeah, you know, you know anything about this guy I'm playing tomorrow? And it was Lee Trevino. He said, yeah, you're playing me. <laughs> so he thought, OK, this is in the bag. And then he proceeded to get fully into the bag over the course of that day. And it was supposed to be a two-day event, as I recall, and Titanic had made a lot of bets. Um, And Lee beat him the first day, straight up, I think by one shot, or I think they played match. Uh, I thought about even writing this as a book at one point, because it's such a fantastic story. And Ray, when he realized he'd been had, you know, paid his bets, but he didn't come back for the second day. And that was really the... twice. Exactly. Um, and that's what that's really what sent Trevino on his way. He that gave him the confidence, at mm-hmm. least that's what I heard, to to try to, and, and two years later, I think he wins the open at Marion. But anyway, we go back. So you'd write a book about Jack and Arnie, right? Jack and Arnie or Lee, I think. If if um I, I met I did meet Lee one day on a driving range and he was very friendly. He you know, he knew the books and uh, we screwed around. He showed me a few shots, and um, I liked him tremendously. And I got I I, I know Crenshaw fair, fairly well, and um, he adores Lee Trevino, but he always worried about him that you know the the difference between the public and the private Lee was so extreme that um, he he worried that Lee might be battling depression or that right. when he was he spent so much time alone. And really what he'd been battling was a lifetime of prejudice growing up. 
And he had developed that, uh, the, the Mary Max persona as a way to kind of get over, you know, when, when, when you talk to him, he's actually, you know, he's a substantial and serious guy. So um, I, I thought he would make a good subject um, for a real solid biography. I, I, I for one appreciate the fact that, that uh, the greatest game you shine the light on Francis we met who I don't think got enough attention until that book for for his accomplishments and his contributions to golf. I couldn't agree more and um, I heard about Francis when I was probably 14. I had a Scottish grandfather who lived in uh, upstate New York in the Albany area. And he belonged to um, a fantastic um, little course. Tom Doe came in and redid it. He loved the course so much. It's the Country Club of um, Troy, New York. Walter Travis designed it. Um, Fantastic kind of, almost a kind of combo parkland links course. We were out playing and he told me about the story about this young caddy. I was a little bit younger than Francis had been. Um, who had won the U.S. Open. So I heard about it at that age. Wow. Uh, so that's how I knew about him. And it had stuck in my head all these years. And I was talking, I had introduced my literary agent to golf. He he was a New Yorker. He lived, he had a place in, in the Hamptons. Um, and we were out at um, this kind of down market driving range one day because he thought I haven't played since I was a kid. I want to, I want to, he was, six foot three and left-handed so the odds were against him but and he was over 50 so i said okay well we'll give it a shot and i told him the story of francis that day and i'd never written nonfiction. i'd never written about golf he said no you stop right there this is a book and you have to write it (laughs) i said really and he said yeah (laughs) so um i went off the course and got on the phone and i found the francis we met um, foundation in Boston and uh, the director at that time, a great guy named Bob Donovan who um, was running it. And I, I got on a plane a few days later and flipped to meet him. And I, I wanted to get their permission and I wanted to talk to Francis's daughters and get their permission. And I met Eddie Lowry's daughter, Cynthia. And uh, no, I was stunned that no one had ever done this. And I but spent think, the next, uh... next year researching it and, Think of the confluence of events, though. You, you got in your own way. You met Eddie Lowry, who's yeah. an essential character to this book that we're looking at here. The match is there. Yeah. You know, that's what introduced me to Eddie. Um, and uh, it was through all of these connections, because as you may or may not know, Francis, we met later on. You know, never turned pro, became a, a stockbroker with Brown Brothers Harriman in Boston. And among his clients uh, were Eddie Lowry, who was his lifelong friend, who became one of the leading Lincoln Mercury dealers in America and a multimillionaire, and two young salesmen who worked for him, (laughs) uh, who were both ace uh, amateur golfers, uh, Ken Venturi and and, uh, Harvey Ward. So when I met Ken for the first time, we were at, I think we had lunch at Bel Air Country Club and he, I hadn't heard this story and he told it to me over lunch. 
and I was obviously riveted. And um, just as I had to do with everybody associated with Francis, I, I really needed to, to win Ken's trust too, because this was literally, we'd first met and I was just there to get, get kind of deep background on Francis and Eddie. So I cultivated a friendship with, with Ken over the next year or so and spent a lot of time with him. And I said, finally, you know, I think we should, we should do this book. I mean, you know, we've got you. Uh, Harvey was gone. Uh, Hogan was obviously gone. Byron was still alive. Yep. And I flew down to, to Fort Worth and spent an afternoon with him when he was 96 or 97, I think. Um, and a lot of the, a lot of people, there were people at Cyprus who had witnessed the match, who were my only real eyewitnesses to it. No journalists covered it. Nobody, very few people even knew about it. So um, I got an account from George Coleman's widow. George Coleman was the the kind of the big player. He was in a bunch of businesses, but he started and backed Ben Hogan's golf club venture. Uh, uh, ben Hogan Golf Club started with George Coleman's money. And uh, he knew Ben probably better than anybody. He had died some years before, but he he and Eddie Lowry were the guys who made the bet right. at Bing Crosby's house. So his widow, I believe her name was Dawn, I think in her 90s at this point, uh, I, after I contacted her, said, I found a tape of George telling the story at a dinner party. Would you like to have it? <laughs> Hello. I said, uh, duh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I, so I did get I did get George's point of view <laughs> on, on on tape. And I did get Eddie Lowry's. Eddie had written like a 15 to 20 page version of the story that he'd left with his daughter. So I had I had his perspective on it. So I, I, I kind of was able to tri triangulate it. The guy who was the starter at Cyprus, Joey, and I'm forgetting his last the name. The same guy that was in the book? The yeah. same starter that was telephoning people and getting... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was still around. He was still around. <laughs> so I got him. I got his end of it, too. And so I felt I had enough to kind of piece it all together. And then I had, you know, the primary resource was Ken. Uh, and I think because up to that day, this was probably facing his two greatest heroes with Harvey in this match and on that course where he had grown up and caddied, uh, it was the biggest day of his life up until then. Mm -hmm. So he remembered, you know, Ken had a great memory. He could remember shots after 35 years of doing the U S open from 30 years ago. Yeah. It, it took a, a little time. We had to kind of, prime the pump he started it was almost like he put himself in a time machine and went back and started recalling details what who was wearing what the wind was doing what the clouds were like where the pins were i mean he remembered it all it was as the if drives were five his drive and hogan's on one hole were five yards apart he knew that fact that's incredible yeah he had it all even on the on the 13th when they all made birdie um, th there was a great event getting ahead of this a little bit after the book came out um, in 2012, I think it was, Ken had been notified by um, 
the golf hall of fame, he was going to be admitted that year. And um, they had decided that there's the first T organization, which ha has a yearly uh, tournament at Pebble. And they had decided to invite Ken and I as uh, two of the guests of honor for the event. It was a, there was a tournament and, and the fun part was the tournament was the first day at Pebble. Big dinner that night at Pebble, I think. Um, the next day, we recreated the match. Thanks for joining Billy us Casper, today. Billy Horner. We really appreciate your Double feedback. Indemnity. And please Marky. subscribe to Two the show. Ratter. And hit Claude the bell Harmon. icon so you get notified. Movie classics. Of new episodes. Mark Gable. Hit them hard. Job. And hit them off. That's 36 holes.